This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Dr. Girazari has a most impressive and lengthy resume, so I'm not going to rehearse it for you. I'll just give you a few quick highlights and then turn it over to him. Uh, he holds a PhD from Northwestern in Religion, Society, and Personality Sciences. He holds an MDiv from McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago as well. You're well trained in weather such as this, I suppose, uh, in addition to your academic fields. And a BA from the University of Puerto Rico in philosophy. Uh, his professional experience is simply uh, outstanding and incredible. He is currently the director of Cambridge College in Puerto Rico. Uh, he has been the acting president of the Theological Seminary of Puerto Rico and the dean of the same institution. Uh, he was also dean of the Doctor of Ministry Programs and associate professor of cultural studies and religion and education at McCormick in Chicago. Uh, he has been a member, a chair of the visiting accreditation team uh, on several occasions for the Middle States Council of Higher Education and the Association of Theological Schools. Uh, he's a member of the editorial board of the journal Latino and Hispanic Theology. He has numerous publications, I'll just highlight two. Um, the Religious Educator as Cultural Spectator, Spec Actor, uh, sorry, Researching Self and Intercultural Pedagogy, and that was published in the journal Religious Education. Toward an Intercultural Approach to Theological Education for Ministry in the edited volume Building the Beloved Community. And finally, Lost in Translation, The Possibilities and Challenges of Ecumenical Dialogue. So we are honored and privileged to introduce such an esteemed scholar and teacher as Dr. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, I really feel welcome as I look through the window <laughs> by you. And unfortunately, I couldn't bring a piece of sun with me and some of the 85 degrees that are right now in Puerto Rico. Um, but let's move with this presentation and this moment. Uh, I have to say that for the last uh, five years or so, um, I have been intrigued by uh, the German-Jewish intellectual tradition for reasons that will become evident as I do this presentation. Um, I also have, or as part of my presentation, um, I, I, put, I wrote a note on my personal affinity to this body of work, and because we only have 20 minutes or so, we can later on talk about it, but right now it's gonna be self-evident by the presentation why I'm intrigued uh, by the German-Jewish philosophical tradition or intellectual tradition when it comes to the discussion of issues of intercultural, uh, intercultural relations within the church. Um, we shall be reminded um, to engage this dialogue that diversity, or what we call diversity, is the condition of human affairs grounded in the singularity and irreducibility of each person. Now, difference, we are reminded by cultural critics, is a social construction that claims aspects of that diversity as significations of otherness. I'm trying to visually, I know you like uh, graphics because I have seen your documents and there's a circle everywhere. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> um, but you know, as I see, we will always have this dialectic of unity and diversity as we engage in any social context, 
and any institution, including the church. Um, and the question that I bring today is how we move from that circle of interaction between unity and diversity and start constructing socially the issue of difference. Because difference is something that we can in some way address at certain levels while not diversity. As a human reflective activity, the construction of difference carries with its values, intentions, and implications. Therefore, this construction of difference is constructed within the framework of an ethics. The question that should trigger our ethical reflection is not how can we resist the construction of difference when perceiving human diversity, since as cultural creators we are conditioned to construct differences and cannot circumvent this task, it's a rational task, yet we can continue to ask in what ways the construction of that difference limits or advances the prospect of a more solidary, more just, and more enjoyable, livable world. So I would like to suggest that there are three expressions that may promote ethical deliberation in the tension of diversity and unity as it constructs difference. And those three are hospitality, proximity, and natality. Now, that's not in the dictionary, but it comes from the Jewish, as you will say, Jewish-German tradition, natality. First, difference can be addressed ethically by exploring the practice of hospitality. Encounters with the other are almost always experienced as an encounter with someone he is not totally comprehensible, a distance outsider, a stranger. Hospitality, seen out of the confines of an ethical framework, can promote, and many times promote, asymmetrical relationships for it takes as a principle of execution the idea that there are people in the house, the host, who have the knowledge and resources needed by those outside the house, the guest. The ones offering hospitality belong fully, while the receivers of that hospitality can only belong by decision and voluntary action of those who inhibit the house. So this notion, notion of home is perhaps theologically suspect because it denotes an unquestioned location of identity and a safe space where to retreat from conflict and challenge, something, something that will have made the prophetic tradition irrelevant. Prophetic thought predates the more contemporary claim of post-colonial theory that posits what is called the unheimlich, or the unhomely, as the condition of the modern society, according to Homi Baba. In the history of salvation, God is the host. The land is God's possession. The world is God's place. The people are to be simply sojourners and strangers in that world. For these people, morality rested in the apprehension that to be the people of God, we who are strangers need to care for the most vulnerable strangers in our midst. This sort of bond with the other advances a more symmetrical 
relationship, stranger to stranger, recognizing that at certain moments in history, and depending on the con contextual realities, some strangers will be more vulnerable than others. So what is required in hospitality then is not, is not the identification of who is the insider and who is the outsider, but who is, for the particular moment of the encounter between the same and an other, in more need of sustenance, care, and accompaniment. We cannot exercise moral hospitality if we are not mindful of the fact that we are strangers to each other. In an interview with Dominique Dombs for Le Monde, published in, the, in December 2nd, 1997, French linguist and philosopher Jacques Derrida, although he's Jewish, he's not German, but I will, I will quote him, because he was asked the following question. Does hospitality consist of interrogating whoever arrives in the very first place by asking his name? Or does hospitality rather begin by then questioning welcome? This is interesting. The question has the answer. This is a very French way of asking questions. You know, I'm going to ask you, and the answer is in the question. But his response to the interviewer can serve as our summary to this part of our discussion. He says, pure hospitality consists in welcoming whoever arrives before imposing any conditions on him, before knowing and asking anything at all, be it a name or an identity paper. Hospitality consists in doing everything to address the other, to accord him, even to ask him his name, while keeping this question from becoming a condition, a police inquisition, a blacklist, or a simple border control. This difference is at once subtle and fundamental. It is a question which I is asked on the threshold of the home and the threshold between two inflections. An art and a poetics, but an entire politics depends on it. An entire ethics is decided by it, and I close the quote. As we create an other, as we become poets of this difference, we are ethically bound by the imperative of divine hospitality. Now, once we welcome the other into the fellowship of strangers, lessening the differences and negotiating power we need to get a reasonable distance where a common life project is possible. We cannot achieve unity at a distance from those who we have constructed as different. People are just different in relation to ourselves and our understanding of our sameness. If that difference does not affect my identity in any real or concrete way, then it is merely an abstraction. Emmanuel Levinas illustrates this intersubjective space with the language of proximity. To be proximate to the other is to be awakened to the sensation that we are before one who poses a challenge to our individuality. And I am responsible to respond to that other one way or the other because that person is present. Levinas reminds us that the proximity of the other is not simply close to me in space, but he approaches me insofar as I feel myself, insofar as I am responsible for him or her. 
Levinas goes beyond the idea of proximity as a response to the other, but speaks about a level of empathy we develop when we become proximate to those who are different. That empathy is such that our own identity changes with encounter. The more I become proximate to the one that is socially constructed as different, the more I acquire elements of that difference myself. One has to just observe the younger generations around us, like the millennials, to notice how differences are blurred among those who have learned to be proximate in life, in love, and play. To those, their parents and grandparents consider distant subjects. No surprise to find that young people adapt cultural modes like language, dress, etc., from peers who are culturally, racially, and ethnically different. To understand the need for an ethics of proximity, we just have to be reminded that the history of racial and cultural prejudice is primarily a history of separation. Color, language, national heritage are external signifiers of a spatial signification of difference. To be different is to be at a distance. The distance between the first rows of a bus and the last rows of a bus. The distance between the entrance of a restaurant or the door of the kitchen and the alley. The distance between one side or the other from a fence or a wall or a wall that demarks two distinct uh, geopolitical realities. The distance between the suburban homes and the urban housing projects. What our social realm lacks is public spaces where proximity is fostered, where the frequent dialogue and relational practices between people who are socially constructed as different moves people from their rationalization of difference, for rationalization is always done at a distance, to the sensual experience of feeling the other as a person, a subject who is ultimately human beyond her skin, pigmentation, beyond his accent, beyond his learned behaviors, beyond her life experiences. The ethical question for faith communities is whether in lieu of this lack of public spaces where proximity can be practiced, the church can become that stage for proximity. Is there a real and challenging presence of the others considered different in our worshiping and spiritual spaces? in our missional life? Or are we content with the less creative sense of familiarity? Are we not short-sighted by familiarity as to lose the capacity for wonder? Consequentially, can we be receptive to God's revelation without the mystery of the other? Yet proximity not only gives us presence of an other we have constructed as different, to whom we have to respond, but it also gives us entrance into the narrative of individuals whose lives are unique and surprisingly undetermined by our own biases and prejudices. People who are an other are given the opportunity to become before our eyes. No human person is determined by our construction of his or her difference, 
nor by his or her cultural significations. Every human being has the right to give birth, consciously or unconsciously, to new ways of representing himself and herself to the world. And that's why I borrow the concept, it changed by itself. No, it's good. Oh, that's why. It's very smart. So I, I, I borrow the concept of natality from political philosopher Hannah Arendt to describe this capacity to emerge as a social person before the other in ways that break with all patterns of cultural and even biological determinations. In analyzing this matter of natality, I'm forced to go back to the wisdom of Christian theologians at the turn of the 20th century, who regained the principle of Thomistic metaphysics about the primacy of experience. The human person, reminds us, these theologians, is a self in existence and not in essence. People are heirs to a biography that is open to be narrativized in every place and with every encounter. We are bound by culture and by social constructions of gender, race, ethnicity, but we are not essentially and totally those things. The human person is not what it is, but what it can become. It is in continuous flux, seeking moments of emergence, and thus the mystery of natality. There is something that every birth brings with it, according to Arendt, that unique and unduplicated moment of novelty where every human ethical decision is possible because the appearance of the other brings the realization that we live in a shared world. So in summary, hospitality, proximity, and natality are practices that yield an ethical approach to constructing the much desired unity in diversity. They are practices that find support in the scriptural witness and in the action of God a God who welcomes us with divine hospitality, who comes close to us as to share our human paths, and who starts something new in the world with every birth. In practicing hospitality, proximity, and natality as exercises of faith, we are not only promoting the unity of the diverse body of Christ, but we are also representing divinity as the model of that desire. For both diversity and unity are encompassed by our theological understanding of God as many but one, as the totally other who choose also to be fully the same. A God who is in itself diversity in unity. Is diversity, unity, divinity. It is my experience as an ethnographer, though, of faith communities that in representing God in the social space, the church has overlooked sometimes the div divine practices of hospitality, proximity, and natality when addressing issues of difference. This ethical flaw may spring from a theological approach in church practices in which God is revealed to us primarily as a person. From the Greek language, we learn that a person, a persona, is a mask something the actor uses to channel a character that ultimately is not him or her, as he represents an other. The mask hides the real self and its intention and yet allows persons to perform before others a life narrative in a very veritable way. Let me advance the idea that faith communities have attended to the issue of diversity 
cultural, racial, ethnic, through an observable performance of difference. And in order to do, to do this, have pref has preferred by intention or by lack of options to see cultures and racial differences as persona, as masks that are easily identified, prescribed, and sometimes manipulated to represent a life narrative that is always familiar and invariable. You know that, I don't know if you know that paint, it was owned by Walter Benjamin. He bought it because he loved it, because it was allegorical. It evoked, evoked something, he didn't know what. It's called the Angelus Nobus. And he developed a whole theory of the history of the world and how history really progressed or not in base of that painting. Um, and I was thinking, do I have a piece of art that evokes something on me? And what that piece of art has to do with the work that I'm doing in intercultural relations. And it's this one. One that describes apparently one of the best pieces of work uh, of art in the 20th century, according to some critics, is Le Damisel d'Avignon of Picasso. that starts the whole uh, artistic movement of uh, Cubism. And I will tell you why I'm interested and why this art is an allegory of the things that I'm discussing. The first thing that we see here is that we have four figures that share the same space. And if you see the curtains on the side, it is like a stage to be observed. They are all there to be seen. They have a common behavior we call exhibitionism. Yet in this aesthetic space, differentiation becomes apparent as multicultural expressions emerge in the forms of masks. The bodies are the same, but faces are different. And I see these three ways in which, um, in which the faces are portrayed and identify three ways in which we as a church have addressed the issue of difference. The first one I call performance. As you see, there's an African mask here in the face of this body that is racially equally to the other figures. Here is Picasso himself, painted over the body of a woman. I call it impersonation. And here we see traces in a face, lines, which I call scripting. So the first way in which a person emerged as a, um, as a cultural and racial order in the context of the church is through performance. Each member of the faith community can at any moment in conscious and unconscious ways assume a distinctive cultural position. In other words, in the shared experience of faith, in the common proclamation of a unifying gospel and creed, the moment arises when we decide to wear the mask of a culture through which we can speak and behave. But what triggers such an act of performance from within the faithful? Performing through a cultural mass allows us to speak from a relatively secure place of subjectivity where we can avoid being critique or silence. Yet other times deciding to perform our culture is a way of reaffirming our identity in the church and a way of asserting the value of alternative ways of understanding God's revelation and living our faith. 
A cultural mask can also be an affirmation of the contribution of our specific traditions to the church as a whole. More frequently, the cultural mask is utilized as a defense mechanism to resist the religious imposition of most dominant cultures. In that sense, the mask is value-free and it, it is our performance that determines if it is used ethically to promote a faithful and solidary community. As Jack Staminox aptly said, performance is a grace and defect of action, a defect that claims for redemption. Now, another common way in which race and culture is manifested in the context of church life is through impersonation. In this case, once a cultural other reveals herself in a context, a person from a different culture receiving this revelation attempts to develop empathy by trying to take the position of the other. Like in this case, Picasso trying to take the position of an exhibitionist body of a woman. In the process, one cultural subject seeks to fuse himself with another cultural subject to make judgments from this new position of empathy. The most common behavior of this type of intercultural manifestation is when a faithful and well-intentioned person says to understand the culture of another marginalized group because his or her experience with other members of that culture, or even because that you have lived among them. That's the anthropological argument. I have been there, I have been with you, I know how your culture operates. Because of this experience, I can speak for you and about you with authenticity. A frequent and visible act of cultural impersonation in the church happens when for some celebrative purposes and liturgical purposes, children or members of the community dress and act as people from other communities that are not their own. We can only do that by engaging in what we can properly call cultural drag, as in this impersonation reveals more about the culture of the performance than the culture that they want to represent. At best, it allows a keen observer to identify and analyze the patterns used by the church to construct the other. And finally, the third way in which cultural difference is treated in the context of the church, I call scripting. In this practice, we have composed a cultural script of the groups that make up the fabric of the church. And relying on the accuracy of the script we have created, we attempt to expand the faith and knowledge base of its member by asking them occasionally to represent before us their cultural subjectivity. Tell me about your culture. Because we assume the script of every race and ethnic group that belongs to the church, we invite them to repeat their script and explain their character to us. How many times after a general discussion of an important ecclesial issue I have been asked, tell me, Jose, how will the Latinos see this issue or how they will respond? Members tend to respond to external scripting with diverse level of engagement or resistance. I have seen that those who are more assimilated into culture will receive, resist uh, scripting and say, no, I am not a representation of that culture. Those who are less assimilated are more willing 
to narrativize their life and their experience as part of that script. If I'm just a newcomer, I will appreciate being asked to bring forward my cultural script. The scripting model is a residual of colonizing cognitive structures, where the history of colonized peoples was scribed for them by the dominant culture. As a result, when minoritized cultures assimilate to the dominant culture, they tend to resist the impositions of a multicultural discourse on them. It's they refuse to carry that cultural taxation where you always have to tell a story about yourself to others, just because you look different. In conclusion, we are to be the church, we are to be a civil, civil community within the condition of plurality. This is an inescapable task. Faith informs the ways in which we can address diversity construct differences out of that diversity, and seek the ultimate goal of unity. But the language of faith is so ample and polysemic that it can produce contesting ethical responses to these matters. Who speaks to us as we try to comprehend the mystery of the other? The God who is persona, a mask being, or a God who is a force, an activity, a relationship? A God who is, as Karl Rahner and Bernard Lonergan will suggest, not simply out there as objective substance, but that is God for us in relational subjectivity. In matters of racial and cultural intersubjectivity, the answer does make a difference. For performance weakens hospitality, impersonation denies proximity, and scripting cancels the possibility of natality. The ethical key to begin untying the ever-present conundrum of unity and diversity may lie on the way we represent God. And in representing God, we signal a new world of intercultural discourse and practice. And this world is yet to come. Thank you very much. You have questions, comments? And this is a work in progress. In fact, I'm trying to develop um, 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 basically, I, I'm trying to work with more authors on this tradition um, and also bringing the theological tradition to bear. Uh, for example, the word, the anthropology of Ranner, which I think also gives some light to this relational theology. Um, so, so this is work in progress. Any comment will help. Any question as I put together a piece of work that can be readable, understandable. <laughs> yes? I like what you said. Uh, can I ask, well, how do you see the implications of all that you said for ecumenism and the diversity within Christianity and Certainly. The scripting within Christianity, et cetera? Certainly. <laughs> And in fact, one of the things that we can do with this work, and, and when I, I, I bring the issue of, uh, I have been very careful not to use the word, word uh, the concept of multiculturalism, because it's already embedded in a tradition that only discusses culture in light of race and ethnicity. And certainly, as I was working with this, the, the, those were the issues I were, was addressing. But culture, culture should be understood at any kind of bound group of people 
um, who are guided by certain worldviews and behaviors and conducts that can be recognizable. So that means, yes, religious religions, religious traditions, and even within Christianity, different denominations, they are cultural representations by themselves. So the same thing applies to ecumenical relations in the way that we basically work with the other and how we, um, as you're saying, we, we script the story of the other. Um, and, and that's why the encounter in is not only ecumenism cannot only be lived out as traditionally has been in just in pastoral ministry or work out they have to be context of proximity where i can start to deconstruct the script that i have about what a catholic is and the catholic deconstruct the idea of what a methodist is or an episcopalian is uh, but that only happens in this kind of work of conversation and that's what I, for me what strengthens the identity of a tradition is this encounter with the other. And that is counterintuitive because usually we say, no, let's keep this homey. Again, let's go back to the image of the home. Let's keep within ourselves because the other threatens that identity. On the contrary, on contraire, as French will say. Because as you encounter the other, the whole cognitive dissonance of what is familiar what you take for granted comes open. I didn't know there was another word for the same word that I use in my church. You know, uh, I, I didn't know there was another concept or another worldview to explain the same thing, unless I was with the other. So it seems to me that it applies in that context very well. And in fact, that can be the starting point. Because this project of interculture, as I have presented, of ethnicity and culture, and even we can consider gender to be part of the mix. Um, this is a larger social project. The church can contribute, but the church can start modeling that within the unity that is basically expected. The church can live out. Uh, we can model that through ecumenical relations and show, and show how it works well or not. Yes. Thank you. I'm wondering um, if you could speak a little bit about the implications of some of these concepts for education and pedagogy, as you've done in, in your writing. Mm -hmm. so your writing and, um, if you will permit me, I will read from one of the articles mm -hmm. you submitted. If culture is not a central component of the educator's self-image, it will remain out of the picture of self-reflection. For this reason, the suggestion of engaging on self-research is more intentional than a simple selection of a construct. Yeah. I was very um, taken by some of what you wrote in this particular piece. So I wonder if you could help us think through the implications of some of these concepts and themes for all of us as educators yeah. and for our students in this particular context of Villanova where, as you may be aware, the majority of our students are white, mm -hmm. are upper class or upper middle class. <coughs> so how, how, and that's not to say there aren't people from other backgrounds, but. Mm -hmm. Um, how would you work with these concepts with us in this? Okay. The problem of diversity will be always present. Um, sometimes we cannot name it because, again, we start not with the issue of diversity, but with difference. Since we don't see what we consider to be difference, for example, they are middle class, they are all white, there's no diversity, then it doesn't become an issue. Experientially, 
we confront problems of understanding. It can be a generational problem. It can be the fact that I'm trying to teach something and students are just resisting that. Isn't that just a generational issue that, that binds two different cultures in the context of the classroom? And I, I don't understand it as difference because I, they look alike to me. So that's why I think the self-reflective process I'm talking about in this article is very important. Uh, it's a very important part of any pedagogy. Meaning, as you're thinking about your own teacher teaching, um, for me, it's important to analyze how my culture affects the learning process of, of students, whether they look like me or not. Um, you know, sometimes in the Latino context where I'm at right now, I teach to people who speak my same language, they look like me. Um, but there's something, I'm from the academic culture, I have grown there, my students not. Sometimes I'm affecting the learning because I don't recognize how the way I speak, the way I behave is not clicking with them. So, and, and that's what I'm saying, that's part of any pedagogy. Good pedagogy requires you to be self-reflective of how you're impacting because at the end, you want to, to see what are the outcomes of your teaching. Uh, and sometimes we cannot just say, well, it's the result of what the student accomplished. No, sometimes it's the reflection of what happens in that encounter. Okay? Um, and that when we are proximate, what is going on that doesn't allow me to communicate the one I want to communicate and the person to listen to me? So that's part of the self-reflection. And, and, and certainly, we are in the context, if I want to be specific sometimes, uh, when we teach and we have people of other cultures. Um, let, let's say we, we recognize a person from another culture. Um, uh, we have 20 students and there's one black student. Now, in Puerto Rico, I, I don't even realize if I have been in a class with 20 white students and a black, because I don't construct difference because of the, the person's skin tone. So uh, it's not in, in the realm of my, my vision. But you can identify that. And then without noticing, you probably expect things because you have a script of how a black student learn or his or her experience, and you want to use it as part of your classroom. And you can be very well-intentioned, and then you go to that student and say, okay, in your community, how do you address this question? Or how do you feel as a black Catholic? And in fact, in my, in my syllabus, you see, I use one of the articles I use for the class. It's about the experience of black Catholics in the church. And, and, but by doing that, you're scripting that person. And that person can be confused. That person can, the learning of that person can be affected by the cultural taxation imposed on that student without any kind of asking of, uh, that you're going to represent something that I construct as different. Okay? Uh, usually I allow that to emerge in the experience. And students who want to do it will do it. Um, in a context like this, I think the work that your colleague is doing here on uh, white privilege, I think um, that's a starting point. That doesn't mean that we that because we don't see diversity, we don't have to address it. Uh, even your students will go into a world that is diverse and pluralistic. The church they're going to be serving and working with is diverse, um, so diverse that it's becoming uh, the majority of Catholics are non-white. So what does it mean? How, how the university looks in relation to that church it serves? 
and wh what's the bridge? Okay, so um, that answers the question. Okay, there are many examples I can give <laughs> because I have encountered that because I'm conscious always. I take note, uh, and, and and I have encountered uh, in my own teaching moments in which the issue of culture emerges. It's not always there, but it emerges, and I take note. Why did it emerge? Why the issue of difference was was you know interpellate here? For example, in t in terms of masks. Um, you are teaching a class, and um, you ask for a paper, and you have a student who is from a different culture, and the student will say, you grade the paper, and you give a, a C, let's say, and the student will tell you, well, the thing is that we don't understand that that way in our culture. Now, what will be your option? I don't know if you have confronted that, that you grade something, or you just make an evaluation of something, and the response will be, the problem is you. You didn't understand my context, and that's not the way we think. What do you do? I want to engage you in conversation. What do you do with that student? No, I'm just telling you, I'm thinking about, I remember a student, I was reading this paper, and I, I kept, you know, I would write comments, you know, this is unclear, you know, you've got to support this all. And the student said to me, I understand it. I don't know what you don't understand. It's perfectly clear. Mm -hmm. You're also writing for others. And exactly. so you have to find a way and to make it clear. And if you're having difficulty expressing it, mm -hmm. now yeah. uh, give examples, <coughs> illustrate it, do yeah. anything possible to, to get that, those concepts across or your ideas across. Exactly. And you come back. But I just remember it was the funniest experience of going, I am going to live yeah, the important thing is, I'm saying this because I have seen the response of many faculty, it's just to say, let's lower you know, the bar here and say, okay, fantastic, uh, I don't want to be accused of being you know, a prejudicial or racist, or, um, so let's do that. I don't think that helps the process. I think in the learning, we all learn through, through this, and, but knowing that mask can be used, then dialogue with the student, say like, why is that important for me to understand that your epistemology is different? That your ways of communication are different? Let's talk about it. Actually, one time, I graded a student, it was a, a, a Korean student, and I could understand the patterns of writing. But I sat with the student, and we went through, and I found a very consistent pattern that I don't use because I'm from the West, but it was really interesting, where all the explanation, you know, we usually start with a, with a premise, and then we explain it. No. It comes the conclusion first, the explanation, and you never see the premise until the end. But it always happens that way. I say, okay, from now on, this is going to be your criteria for grading. If you don't fulfill your own, what you say now, if it's a mess, I, I'm going to catch you. Now, that's a lot of work for you as a professor, but that's me because I'm a reflective teacher. That's what I do. Uh, that's my field. Uh, but, but, but engage the student in conversation. Don't leave it like that. This is proximity. This, are, this is encounter. You don't, you don't show hospitality just by saying, oh, do whatever you want. You have to say, this is a home we are sharing, as you're saying. We have to understand each other. Let's see how we can understand each other. Yes? Just, you know, just pushing me aside if this isn't good, but I'm just sitting here and I'm wondering, 
I'd love to know what was it in your experience that put you on this path of thinking this way? Oh, many things. Many things, many things. And I'm sorry because I think I shared this with somebody before. Um, I have to say, one is my spiritual biography. That's the first one. Um, I am a strange, a strange creature when it comes to my own religious identity because I am a Presbyterian. And as I look back to the generations in my family, we have been Presbyterians for three generations back very rare in the Latino community. Somewhere, scripting. Sometimes when I find some Catholic friends say, oh, when did your family just left the church? So like, my, my family never left the church. We have always been. And the other day I learned that my great-grandmother was a lay preacher in the 19th century. I so said like, wow, so where are the Catholics in this biography? Now, to the point that I made about identity and con you know, how we can solidify our identity, because I don't have that kind of conversion in my biography, the sort of antipathy that that conversion process causes in many Catholic communities, uh, Latino Catholic communities, where you convert and now you cannot relate, that kind of contesting reaction didn't happen in my home. We were always very welcoming of a tradition that we found it was our own. So when people say, you know, I'm, I'm Presbyterian, I'm a Presbyterian ordained minister, and when people say, uh, what do you think about Catholics? They're like, but, but I'm Catholic, what do you mean? That creates confusion, but I speak a Catholic language, I live in a country of Catholic ethos, uh, I participate in popular religion, uh, which is Catholic. Um, so, so I'm embedded with that tradition myself. So it's, for me, it is an issue now, the difference I have to deconstruct, rather than construct, is something I have to deconstruct to understand why is that in certain areas of my community, people make that distinction. The second one is my history of immigration, you know, trying to adapt from one culture to another. As I was telling you before, um, I never addressed the issue of blackness until I came to the US. Actually, I never addressed the issue of Hispanism until I came. I, I'm only a Hispanic. When did I arrive here? Let me see. Yesterday. So 18 hours. I have been a Latino for 18 hours. And I will cease being a Latino tomorrow by four. Okay? Um, so that means I'm not a Latino in my context. I'm a Latino as I immigrate and then the sort of proximity that I get here with people from other Latin American countries. And then we have to see what we have to negotiate to become this label, social label that we call Hispanic. Uh, and when I'm here, I eat tacos in church and I love them. When I'm at home, I hate tacos. It sounds weird, but that's the way it is because you need to create, uh, you know, the social label is there for you to grasp. The script is there and you have to participate in a conscious way of that script. And if you're gonna be in a, for example, if you go to a Catholic parish, then you will find, you know, it's, it's not, you know, th there are Latinos, but they are the Mexican new generation, the third generation of Mexicans, the Puerto Rican, the Dominicans, um, and, and you will have all, everything there. Um, so yes, those two experiences, the experience of immigration and the spiritual biography has 
led me to this path and my own experience as a student in the U.S. and the challenges I confronted and the unwillingness of many faculty members to just reflect on those experiences with the students. You know, to come from the content a little bit. How can you be teaching a course on ethics and not address the most prominent ethical question in this classroom? <laughs> that some people, some people's, for example, epistemologies are not taken for granted. That some people are receiving the wealth of knowledge and others are shortchanging. Those things have to happen. Yes? So why your fascination with the German and the Jewish? Okay, I have the list here. <laughs> well, in fact, you, we are always fascinated by, by different readings, probably because I have been reading a lot um, um, you know, on these writers. But, but there are a couple of things that compel me. Um, and, and I find some affinity of their work with what I'm trying to do. Um, first, because I'm a practical theologian. That's the first one. Um, and I like to attend to thinkers whose religious identity plays a fundamental role in the way they look at their daily life, life practices. Usually when we construct theology, it's for the use of the church. But Jewish philosophers or theorists, like Aren on politics, uh, Levinas on ethics, they are not consciously using theology. They don't say, this is the theology, so let's use it to interpret the world. They are saying, this is my identity, and consciously or unconsciously, it will impact every social practice, not, even, not only the religious practice, but all practices. So to do politics, to do, and I think that's something as a practical theologian, I like to work with. Not only, you know, usually practical theologians think about the practices of the church within the church, but I think it's the role of the practical theologians to use theology as a resource to interpret other practices that are cultural and social, like education, politics, and those things. Um, so it's an interest. The other one is um, that these thinkers introduce uh, new, new epistemological considerations uh, from the margins of society. Um, and I am trying to see how can I also contribute from the margin where I see I am to the academic discourse. Uh, some of the articles, if you see there, are basically taking things from the Latino culture and saying, okay, how can we discuss the issue of ecumenism, for example, using the concept of bilingualism? Uh, can a bilingual aesthetics help ecumenism? The fact that bilingual people in the Latino culture can transition from one community to another, linguistic community to another, and come back and don't lose the identity? Isn't that what happens in a communal dialogue too? So operating in epistemology from the margin, and this is epistemology from the margin. Many of these authors were within the context in the 20th century, especially when the German philosophical tradition of Heidegger was so strong and influential, uh, they were dismissed as pure epistemologies because they were marginal. Okay? And it's now that we're revisiting them with this significance. Um, another appealing feature of their body of work is that uh, coming from an enculturated experience of one religion, uh, seeking a space within the cultural dominion of another religion, these this were uh, Jewish uh, people writing within a Christian culture, they tend to be very ecumenical. 
Uh, it's the most ecumenical and interreligious dialogue. You cannot believe uh, in some of the works of, uh, let's say, uh, the work, well, some of you probably have read uh, in ethics, uh, Levinas, but Hannah Arendt, the kind of hermeneutics they do of the Christian scripture is fantastic. I say, like, I have never seen a Christian a theologian <laughs> approach the Jewish tradition and text the way these people use it. And, and the concept of natality is so infused with the theology of incarnation of Jesus. That, that, that it blows your mind and say like, these people are so open to religion and they're so clear about who they are that they can just say, and, 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 and again, in the exchange, they allow themselves to be also reshaped by other cultures. In this case, the Christian culture. I don't know. I know there's an Augustinian uh, scholar here. I don't know what you think about Anna, Hannah Arendt's dissertation, but I think it's one of the most interesting works on Augustine. Uh, her dissertation was Augustine and the Concept of Love. Um, and I found it a fascinating work on, on, on the figure of Augustine, a Jewish German woman writing on Augustine in the Concept of Love. Um, and it's the basis, that work of August, Augustinian work is the basis of the Caritas, is the basis for her work on social and political action later on in her life. So um, basically, and, and more importantly is that Again, the topic is the other. And it seems to me that from the Hebrew tradition um, uh, <coughs> that we see in the depicted in the scripture to, to this kind of work, uh, there's a sensitivity in this body of work to what the other is uh, and to describe that. And, uh, and you know, uh, since this is a work in progress, for example, um, by revisiting some of this work, I just discovered the other day how much they use the concept of face, especially Levinas, and face, 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 and performance, faith. So now that's my, my next step, because as I was showing you, once you take the mask, you have to find something there, a face, okay? And those of you who are uh, uh, scholars of, of uh, Hebrew scripture can later on help me, because it seems to me that also in the, in the scriptural tradition, the concept of face, mm -hmm. especially as it represents God and the relations of God with people, uh, I think it's very, very important. Um, but, but that's only a clue that I have. I need to dialogue with some of you on that issue. But in their, in their philosophy and in their theory, face is a very generative concept of theory. And that's the next step that I'm gonna work with. I can just comment, it's interesting because the scriptures didn't have the concept of persona. Mm -hmm. uh, Boethius is 500. Mm -hmm. and so all they had was the body and the face. Yes. And it didn't have the concept of the soul, at least early Christianity, until the second century. So you basically had, so when Jesus said, this is my body, he's saying, this is myself. Mm -hmm. uh, because we the, then imposed those words mm -hmm. as we went on in the yeah. tradition. So, so then, and, and, and because they are the words that we have to understand uh, objectivity. We, we need to objectify that reality, that revelation to understand. And that's why Rainer, I think, is important because he takes us back with the transcendental metaphysics to understanding the subjectivity of it all. It transcends that, you know, objective persona. It, it's, it's, it's transcendent. Uh, we cannot capture that with a word. Um, but then, how we understand the allegories is important. What, what is body? What is face? 
Uh, for me, you know, in the, the Hebrew scripture, is God is face, is it's, it's soul, is spirit, and it's a nose. I tell my, my kids, God is a nose, a big nose. Yeah, it is. It's always smelling things, you know, it's breathing in and out, you know, it's, it's a, the big nose. <laughs> Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You breathe in and out. Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Comment and also a question. my own most profound experience of ecumenism was in a community organized in the inner city. where members of the community organization Banking system. Mm -hmm. Yes, but so we are engaged in this common project mm -hmm. and it ha in the classroom, and it has to do with what it is that uh, what is destroying our lives, it's mm -hmm. destroying our humanity, etc. Um, and so uh, I just I just think it is that common enterprise or common project that enables us then to. Um, to, it, it helps to break down those real differences that mm -hmm. exist, yeah. especially the differences in power relationships, mm -hmm. and it's fundamental the difference mm -hmm. is the power of the teacher and mm -hmm. the so-called powerlessness of the yeah. students. I don't know if you want to yeah, uh, two things about that comment. The first one is, as I was saying before, as, as I look at the ecumenical efforts, um, they tend to be two kinds of ways to deal with ecumenism within the church. One is to develop some uh, doctrinal statements that we can all share. Another one is to engage in some practices. And they seem like separate. So that the practices are important, what I'm trying to say here. But how those practices now affect your reasoning about religion itself, that's very important. It cannot be a theory to practice kind of movement. Um, and especially given the mission of this institution, where you know faith, how do you relate faith and reason, is that, okay, I'm doing this ecumenical work. Is that enough? Meaning, just doing the work? How this work affects the way I look now at my theology? What, the, what have I learned from that exchange and the prayer together that affects now my identity, in this case, as a Catholic or as a Protestant? I think, or, so 
or as an Orthodox. So that's very important to us. The question about Freire and the teaching, for, for me, you know, and I love Freire, because I think uh, it, it really re revolutionized uh, pedagogy at many levels, uh, from the church to public education. However, we have to be careful not to recognize, and that's where the reflective practitioner comes to mind, that even when we kind of avoid indoctrination, that's what he says, that, you know, you have to avoid indoctrination, you have to avoid uh, imposing your authority and recognize we are all learners. And I used to do that in my early years of teaching, 20 years ago, and say like, oh no, we are co-learners, this is bi-directional, you learn from me, I learn from you. But then I realized, because I was self-reflective, wait a second, this is impossible. I will be indoctrinating you. Why? Because I selected the readings, because I decided what assignments I'm going to give you. And what. So as long as I have the control of that construction of the classroom and how the knowledge and what is going to be null, the things I'm not going to teach, because that's a selection too, what I'm taking out of the teaching, that in an exercise of power, what I'm including is an exercise of power, what I'm asking you to do is an exercise of power. So what I discovered, what can I do then to recover this idea that we are co-learners? It's to be explicit that that indoctrination is happening. So I, will, I, you know, I usually say, Freire, thank you very much, but indoctrination is happening. Actually, your books, Freire, were indoctrination to us. Yet, the good thing is, because I'm reflective, I'm asked as a teacher to reveal myself for self-disclosure and say, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Because we, are, we want the students to do their own discovery, mm -hmm. but they cannot do it unless we have this kind of self-disclosure and self-reflection where we can say, um, you know, and you know, as I'm preparing, I was looking at some of the, uh, the classes, class sessions I teach, uh, and I find myself and perhaps it's cultural taxation, but I find myself explaining, this is what we're gonna do. Mm -hmm. And this is why we are not reading this. That's my choice, what will be your choice? What is missing, you know? Usually we use a lot of typologies to, to teach because it's easy to put in a PowerPoint, you know? Rather than great discourses, just a typology here and there. Actually, you know, PowerPoint, you know, you have heard that power corrupts? PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. So those typologies, but those typologies always exclude something. So I will always like to give instruments to the student to say, okay, these are the four, the four uh, factors that you have to consider when uh, developing an ethics or whatever. Am I missing something? Out of your experience, what else should we include? Sometimes I do it even creatively. Let's invent a new one, a fifth factor without thinking about it. Uh, let's say dog and cats. Fantastic, dogs and cats. Now, your assignment is to really think about dogs and cats and come out with an explanation like the other four in the typology we have. And sometimes the most creative work comes from that. Say, wow, that's interesting. I never saw dogs and cats as a new category to understand ethics. But anyhow. <laughs>